You're listening to Comedy Central. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. I'm Trevor Noah. It is Thursday, August 13th, and here's your coronavirus tip of the day. If schools are reopening in your area, please remember that you have to be a kid to go to school. You can't just show up because you miss having friends. Anyway, on tonight's episode, why wearing masks could be a crime, sexism is officially on the presidential ticket, and what Donald Trump wants to do in your shower. So let's do this, people. Welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. From Trevor's couch in New York City to your couch somewhere in the world, this is the Daily Social Distancing Show with Trevor Noah. Ears edition. As we all know, the United States is facing unprecedented problems right now. Pandemic, economic collapse, racial injustice, and on top of all of that, Americans all over the country are struggling to figure out which HBO they're signed up for. But President Trump is laser-focused on the most important issue of all, bath time. The Department of Energy has taken it upon itself to propose a new rule that would essentially increase the maximum flow of shower heads. And this comes after the president just last week complained about this issue during a tour of the Whirlpool manufacturing plant in Ohio. Listen to this. You go into a new home, you turn on the faucet, no water comes out. You turn on the shower. If you're like me, you can't wash your beautiful hair properly. You waste 20 minutes longer. Please come out. The water, it drips, right? You know what I'm talking? They put restrictors on. I got rid of that. I signed it out. Yes, while some of us get our best ideas in the shower, Trump gets his only ideas about showers. I mean, we laugh. But what if this whole time, low-flow shower heads really were the reason that Trump's hair is so weird? I'm not gonna lie, I don't think I'm prepared to see Trump coming out looking like a dehydrated Dolly Parton. But this is what's so frustrating about Donald Trump, is that he can get stuff done, it's just that he only cares enough to do it if it affects him personally. So, America's best hope for beating coronavirus is if Trump thinks that one of his kids might get it. No, one of the kids he likes. And by the way, I I just don't wanna think about Trump in the shower. You know, it's like hearing your grandma complain about all the ads on Pornhub. No! Now that's in my head. But let's move on to the United Kingdom. Westeros with electricity. In the wake of COVID-19, their economy has been one of the hardest hits in the world with their GDP plummeting 20%. But in classic British fashion, they are keeping calm and carrying on. The UK's first major outdoor concert is offering maybe a glimpse of the future. Take a look at this. Sam Fender performed for 2,500 people in person at the Virgin Money Unity Arena in Newcastle this week. The venue was sectioned off into small groups, letting fans rock together without getting too close to other groups. The outdoor setup includes 500 separate seating sections with metal fences, which are for groups of five to attend and watch the show. Tickets reportedly sold out immediately. Yo, massive props to the UK for figuring out how to do concerts in the age of corona. Because I don't care what you say, that is awesome. Although I will say the mosh pit just didn't have the same energy. I gotta figure that out. But still, this is the best way to keep socially distant at a concert. I mean, it's either this or going to see Lou Vega perform. I mean, there's plenty of elbow room either way. In fact, this is how all concerts should be from now on. Even after coronavirus is over, this is the future. 
Although I bet there's still gonna be that one asshole blocking everyone's view of the stage by carrying his girlfriend on his shoulders. That doesn't need to be a thing, it needs to be banned. It doesn't just ruin the concert for people who can't see, it also discriminates against us guys who lack the upper body strength to carry our girls. Not everyone has traps, okay? So, concerts might be coming back, which is really good news. And here's some more good news from overseas. Countries in the Southern Hemisphere are now well into their annual flu season. But it turns out that because people have been social distancing and wearing masks for coronavirus, they're basically stopping the flu as well. So they got two benefits for the price of one. You know, it's like how you stop vaping to be healthier and then you get the added benefit of no longer looking like a douchebag. Now, there's no guarantee that this will happen everywhere, but this could be great news for countries in the Northern part of the world when their flu season hits in November. Although that only happens if people are taking the necessary corona precautions. And it looks like in America, people might be dealing with corona season, flu season, and idiot season. Well, the new mask showdown in the Sunshine State. A Florida sheriff is banning his deputies and visitors to his office from wearing face coverings. In his order, he mandates the 900 deputies and staff on his force not cover their faces for routine work, saying in part, when you are on duty working as my employee and representing my office, masks will not be worn. And it's not just deputies. The sheriff in Marion County, Florida says anyone from the public who goes inside the sheriff's office must also remove their masks. Okay, this is batshit crazy. A sheriff in Florida is banning his deputies and anyone entering the sheriff's office from wearing a mask. Like, I thought the police's top priority was supposed to be keeping people safe. But I guess wearing a mask gets in the way of their actual priority, showing off their sweet porn stashes. I mean, you've almost got to admire the balls on the sheriff. Everyone is protesting against police shootings, and he's like, I hear your demands. From now on, we'll come up with a different way to kill people. What? Nobody's getting shot. Don't get angry at me. Also, uh, this completely undermines the no mask movement, right? Because what do they say? This is America. You can't order me to wear a mask. And now it's like, I can order you not to wear a mask. Now that's freedom. And speaking of freedom, this next story comes out of Belarus, the Ukraine of Lithuania. Last week, the country's autocratic ruler held an election that many election observers say was a sham. But in a country where citizens have largely been quietly resigned to their fate, this time, they rose up. The authorities in Belarus say 6,000 people have been arrested and one person was killed in the violent aftermath of President Alexander Lukashenko's disputed re-election. Opposition leaders say the vote was rigged. Many of them have been detained or forced to flee the country, including the main candidate, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya. Lukashenko won around 80% of the vote. He's been in power since 1994 and is considered by many as Europe's last dictator. We want the people of Belarus to have the freedoms that they're demanding, that they think are in their best interests. Uh, we watch the protests. We, we, we urge that, these, that the nonviolent protesters be protected and not harmed. Yeah, that's right. Belarus should protect its nonviolent protesters the same way America does, in unmarked vans. And don't get me wrong, these were some strong words. It just didn't help when Pompeo finished the speech by shooting tear gas at the reporters. I mean, either Mike Pompeo doesn't remember how America treats nonviolent protesters, or he just forgot to include some winks in his statement. We urge that the nonviolent protesters be protected and not harmed. Now, it's easy to look at what's happening with the elections in Belarus and say, well, 
That's just some faraway dictatorship. That'll never happen in America. But honestly, I think sometimes America gets so caught up in its own exceptionalism that it ignores warnings it could be taking from other countries. You know, if America paid attention to Brexit, it would have realized how social media can be used to bamboozle people into voting for crazy candidates who promise to fix everything. If America paid more attention to China, they would have realized that coronavirus is something that could come to this country and screw everything up, as opposed to something that only happens overseas. And if America might think that rigged elections are something that only happens in other places, well, in reality, it's already starting to rear its ugly head right here. President Trump upped the ante in his battle against mail-in voting today. He appeared to say the quiet part out loud, telling Fox News why he opposes a funding boost for the U.S. Postal Service. They want three and a half trillion uh, billion dollars for the mail-in votes. Okay, universal mail-in ballots. Three and a half trillion. They want twenty-five billion dollars. Billion for the post office. Now they need that money in order to have the post office work so it can take all of these millions and millions of ballots. But if they don't get those two items, that means you can't have universal mail-in voting. God damn. I've never seen a villain give away a plan like that without seeing James Bond tied to a chair in front of him. I mean, because people, this is insane. Trump got impeached for trying to secretly rig the election and his response is to go, I learned my lesson. I won't rig an election in secret ever again. And the truth is this effort to sabotage mail-in voting is a real threat to America's election. If Trump gets his way, they're gonna have to change all the I voted stickers to end in a question mark. I voted? I guess the one upside of Trump telling us all of this right now is that it gives Americans an opportunity to fight back and prepare. Although the downside is that it's gonna put a lot of TV detectives out of their jobs. President Trump is making big changes to the U.S. Postal Service that appear to be slowing down the mail. But one big question remains. Why is he doing it? In a new interview this morning, President Trump explicitly said that he is opposing a request for Postal Service funding in the new relief package because he wants to stop the expansion of mail-in voting. I guess we solved it. So first for the franchise. Finish this sandwich now. I thought I had some time, but I guess not. That was a roller coaster. All right, we have to take a quick break. But when we come back, we'll look at how Kamala Harris's opponents are pulling out the old sexist playbook. So stick around. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. So Tuesday was a big day for the 2020 presidential campaign. It's the day that Mike Pence got a brand new tattoo. But also, Joe Biden announced Kamala Harris as his running mate. And yesterday, Kamala wasted no time getting into the fights. Harris also signaled she'll do what vice presidential running mates usually do, aggressively attack the other side. The case against Donald Trump and Mike Pence is open and shut. His refusal to get testing up and running, his flip-flopping on social distancing and wearing masks, his delusional belief that he knows better than the experts, all of that is reason, and the reason that an American dies of COVID-19 every 80 seconds. Damn, that was brutal. And you know it probably ruined Trump's day. Why is Omarosa being so nasty to me? 
And why is she friends with Biden? What happened, folks? But just as Kamala immediately went on the attack, conservative media immediately started taking their own shots at her. I wouldn't trust Kamala Harris. I think she's very ambitious. She's a very mean person. Nobody likes her. You have a, a sort of a mad woman, I call her, because she was so angry and so, such hatred with Justice Kavanaugh. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. She seems to come across as, as a bit abrasive, as, as a, the president mentioned. I don't know if she can warm things up and be a little more charming. I would describe her as uh, um, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, uh, but smarter and without the bartending experience. She might look like the, the full package, but when it comes to people judging her, uh, especially women, I think they feel there's no warmth there. Yeah, you know what? Fox News has a really good point here. Americans always want their leaders to be warm. I mean, that's why Trump won. The dude's so warm, he sweats his makeup off. And I really don't get the criticism that Kamala is too ambitious. I mean, how do you get on a presidential ticket if you're not ambitious? What, you think you're gonna be sitting at home on the couch and then the DNC is gonna come knocking on the door like, sir, put down that joint. We need you in the White House. But the big question is, why is it that when female candidates run for office, the media starts to bring up tropes and stereotypes that they don't bring up for male candidates? Well, to help us figure that out, we're joined by our very own Dulce Sloan. Dulce, first off, thank you for taking the time to join us today. Taking the time? Trevor, it's Corona. What else was I using my time for? Before you called, I was organizing my closet in alphabetical order. Blouses, cardigans, dresses, you get it. Wait, what? Who organizes their closet by alphabet? Shouldn't you do it by color? Okay, clearly you're still suffering from apartheid thinking, Trevor, but I'm free. Okay, well, either way, Dulce, um, I appreciate you because I'm trying to figure out the media's coverage of Kamala Harris. Like, what do you make of it? <sighs> Same bullshit as always, Trevor. Female candidates get covered less like politicians and more like Miss Universe contestants. How, how does she smile? Does she look good in a dress? Will Steve Harvey get her name right? Yeah, but why do you think the media has this double standard in politics? Politics? Negroes, this double standard is everywhere. Have you not been paying attention to this wet-ass pussy controversy? Oh, you mean like why Kylie Jenner was in the video? No, ain't nobody talking about that goofy ass girl, you silly man. No, I'm not talking about the song. I'm talking about why people are talking about the song. Cardi B and Macon D. Stallion have given us the sex-positive song of the summer celebrating women owning their sexuality. Something men have been doing since Adam ate that apple in the Garden of Eden and got his first boner. Uh, Dulce, I don't remember that part in the Bible. The point is, male musicians talk about sex all the time, talking about their hard dicks and skeeting everywhere. But when women do it, people are like, this is vulgar, inappropriate. What about the children that look up to them? Who cares about them damn children? Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion are not your nannies. I know it's confusing. You see two women of color in a really nice house, and you assume Aiden and Mackenzie are just off screen with their Mandarin tutor. But it's a huge double standard, Trevor. Okay, Dulce, but to play devil's advocate, you have to admit, it's a really graphic song. Trevor, only in a repressed patriarchal society would people consider a woman's pleasure graphic. Men don't have to censor their pleasure. Drake and Bruno Mars can sing about eating pussy and getting hard, but they still get invited to Thanksgiving dinner. But if Cardi B does it, she's a slut who's taking down society. Well, you, you know, there is another thing. I mean, there's something about rap 
that as soon as some white people hear it, it sounds graphic, you know, just because it's rap. Like I could be like, it's really cool to stay in school. And then some white people would be like, whoa, 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 calm down, sir. You know, so there's always a chance that the problem wasn't the message as much as the fact that it's hip hop. Okay, first of all, don't ever do that again. Listen, that was offensive for a whole different reason. No, no, I, w- I was just trying to show like, like when you say something with the flow, how it goes. No, 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 Whatever it was, stop, okay? The point is we don't live in a society that's comfortable with women claiming their sexuality. It doesn't matter if it's rap or country. I bet if it was a country music star that sang the same lyrics, all these men would still be upset. I, I don't know. I don't know about that Dulce. When we come back, I'll be talking to Kenya Barris about the controversy surrounding his hit show, Blackish. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the Daily Social Distancing Show. So earlier today, I spoke with Kenya Barris, the creator of the award-winning hit series, Blackish. Now, just recently, Hulu released an episode of the show that until now had not been allowed to air. So we talked about that and so much more. Kenya Barris, welcome to the Daily Social Distancing Show. <laughs> Thank you so much. What up, Trev? Thanks for having me, dog. How you doing, sir? This is this is dope. I love your your Zoom background. It looks so real. It looks like you've got a like a really beautiful yard and everything. That's amazing, man. I'm actually in a federal penitentiary. This is this, <laughs> <laughs> this is how we. I want to talk a little bit about the little empire that you've created. I mean, those are those are that's a paradox. Little empire, the empire that you've created. Um, <laughs> Really spinning off from, you know, from blackish. You've got blackish, you've got grownish, you've got mixed-ish, and then on Netflix, you've got black AF. How how much I, I didn't know that there was this much in blackness that that could be that could be extracted from blackness. Like what where, where do we go from this? Because I want to join in. I want I want a piece we of are, the action. We got one more and we and 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 you know we, we can do South African-ish too, but we do have one more coming. You've really done a great job of I think creating experiences and creating shows that speak to the black experience in, in I think, in a way that not, not everybody's familiar with. You know, like, like a lot of shows try and put black in one category. You know, it's either gonna be a sad story, it's either gonna be a slave story, it's only gonna be racism, or it's only gonna be hip hop. But you, in all of your shows, try and tell it in all of its complexity. Like you go like, no, being black is all of these things. With Black AF, you've been picked up for a second season, congratulations. What are you trying to do with the show moving forward? Um, I want to, I want to be relevant. I want to be culturally progressive. I want to say things that haven't been, you know, like it was people, people liked it, people hated it. You know what I'm saying? I think, but it was the most polarizing thing I've ever done. And I have to be honest with you, because of that, it was probably one of my favorite things. Wow. Because I didn't, in a way that I didn't realize before, the best way to really start a conversation is to have people disagree. You know, and I think that so often as, as, black artists, we are not able to have conversations that are not just sort of down the middle. I love that because those kind of conversations were getting created and that's how we move forward. So whatever you know, we do next season, we want to move the conversation forward. We want to sort of, you know, I remember when you started doing, you know, The Daily Show, it was a big change. And it was like, you did not try to do an impersonation. You came and did yourself and you murdered it. But it was like that was a progressive move for the culture. And I feel like the, the way we have to move forward is to do bold, seismic changes to what people have seen us as. So that's what I'm trying to do. 
let's talk about the episode of Blackish that everybody is talking about right now. And that's the episode that was previously shelved under mysterious circumstances and then now has been released on Hulu. And I think it's entitled, Please, Baby, Please. And there was this episode that we heard about and it was supposed to come out, I think it was a year after the election had taken place. And, and then all of a sudden this episode disappeared and people were like, what happened? Where did the episode go? And then Kenya Barris left and uh, ABC and started working with Netflix and people were like, did they, did they censor him? Did they stop him? But now this episode is out and I mean, it, it's, it's a really poignant episode, you know, covering everything that happened in that first year, talking about Donald Trump, you know, talking about xenophobia in the country, the rise of right-wing nationalism, the rise of homophobia, just like everything that we were seeing explode in America during that first year of Trump's presidency. Years ago. Right. But it seems as relevant today. So two things, two things. One, can you tell us why that episode was shelved? And two, why did you fight so hard? Why did you go to Disney and say, hey, I, th- I really think we need to release that episode? Um, I can say that there were creative differences in why it was shelved. You know what I'm saying? I think that it was a really interesting time in Disney's sort of, you know, growth. And at the same time, it was an interesting time in our country's growth. And it was the most blatantly partisan episode of of blackish we'd ever done. You know what I'm saying? Okay. And like, you know, and it was that's that's a hard place to be, you know what I'm saying? Um, for America's broadcasting corporation. You know what I'm saying? To they already had led us to a lot of things. And I felt like some of the things that we could not agree upon in terms of what, what should be there, what shouldn't be there, it was not mm-hmm. something that I felt like at that time I wanted to compromise on. And um, from the highest levels, you know, Bob Iger, you know what I'm saying, understood and like really supported where I was coming from, but at the same time was running a publicly traded company during a, you know, a a merger and and things like that. And it was, you know, we came to a a, a really, you know, at the time, unfortunate, but really respectful, you know, understanding that I did not want to put it out as in without with changing it. Right. And I didn't want to put it out without changing it. And and we decided, and I think, you know, I actually spoke to Iger, who re-aired Hope and Juneteenth, you know, during the time and we were having a conversation and you know bob who's i, I my joke is that he's made in a ceo factory you know what i'm saying <laughs> like it's bob Iger. i'm bob Iger reading for the role of ceo like he's the best ceo i've ever talked to but like we had a real honest conversation about this episode and he was like i love the episode and he was like i think the time is there and he's like i think that there's a lot of curiosity as to actually why it was shown right. instead right. of like us trying to answer it or us trying to talk about it, he was like, I think the time is like, like now to say like, let people put us put it out and let people sort of on their own find their answer of what they can find for us. So I feel like that has been, you know, what I, I've been really, you know, happy with what people have been saying and, and what people have been seeing. And I feel like it is um, one of the highlights of like my writing career is to be able to like, to have something that you felt like was gone that you're really proud of to be able to come back and actually during a time when we're actually in all this stuff speak to people and start a conversation well kenya barris thank you again for joining me on the show uh hopefully next time i'll see you in person my friend enjoy your your zoom background and uh <laughs> good luck good luck with season two of the show thanks i appreciate you thank you for this. All right, my dude i appreciate you man
Okay, after the break, I'm gonna be chatting to Isabel Wilkerson, the author of the smash hit, Warmth of Other Suns, because she's got a brand new book out and it's just as mind-blowing, so don't go away. Welcome back to The Daily Social Distancing Show. Earlier today, I spoke with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author, Isabel Wilkerson. We talked about her new book, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents, which explores the history of racial disparity in America. Isabel Wilkerson, welcome to The Daily Social Distancing Show. Thanks for having me. You came into so many people's lives and you've stayed in so many people's lives because of your 2010 book, um, which really just blew, I think, the lid off of a conversation that so many people wanted to have but didn't know how to have. And that was The Warmth of Other Suns. You now have a new book, which is, um, you know, everyone is raving, everyone from Oprah to every book journalist. And, and I think for a good reason, the book is entitled Cast. And it looks at how society determines where people should or shouldn't belong, but not just through the lens of race, which is really interesting. If we start with that, what is the difference, in your opinion, between caste and race? Well, caste is the basically the artificial, arbitrary, graded ranking of human value in a society. And uh, caste determines one's standing, respect, benefit of the doubt, uh, access to resources or lack thereof, uh, assumptions of competence, and even of beauty. It, it effectively places individuals in a particular hierarchy based upon their perceived value. Race ultimately is the metric by which in in the caste system that I'm describing here in American hierarchy, race becomes the physical manifestation of that determines where uh, one is viewed as being ranked historically. It's the cue card, it's the signifier of where a person is placed in the hierarchy. For many people, they, they might jump, at, you know, at hearing this and say like, whoa, 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 whoa. How dare you say that America has a cost system? Barack Obama was president of the United States and, you know, you can be a TV anchor, you can be an athlete. If you work hard enough, the color of your skin is not controlled by the cost system. This isn't India. This isn't another country in the world where cost is such a big deal. How do you respond to that? Because, I mean, I, you can understand why people get so defensive. Absolutely. That's why I wrote a book about it. (laughs) Um, You know, even in the original um, most recognized caste system in the world, there are people who had been uh, born to what are known as the untouchables, the, you know, the subordinated caste in India, who have managed to uh, transcend the the extreme barriers that they have faced and Mm -hmm. to be able to go forward and to become, uh, you know, physicians and, and even a prime minister. Um, and, and, and there are always exceptions to the rule. But one of the things that I say to help dis- distinguish between caste and other markers, other uh, ways of measuring people, is caste is the bones, race is the skin, and then class is the accents, the uh, enunciation, the, uh, the education and dress, the things that, the diction, the kind of things that we can control that can elevate, that help our, you know, ourselves to elevate ourselves out of the restrictions. But, but class does not mean the same as caste. In other words, if you can act your way out of it, it's class. If you okay. cannot act out of it, it's caste. So if I can act my way out of it, so if I can code switch, or if I can, you know, straighten my hair or change the way I look, lighten my skin, 
those are all the things that you're going to say are falling into the class element of what we see. So how do we how do we think about caste now? Is this like a new problem that we have to handle differently to race and racism and class and classism? Is, is this an additional thing or is this the foundation that everything else is built on? That the idea of hierarchy and a caste system is the foundation, it's the infrastructure of our divisions. One reason why the word racism why, is, is important and it's useful, and of course it is, an, it is a, a reality. But what, we're, what this is asking us to do is to look beneath what we think we can see, believe, but look beneath what we thought we knew, and to see that racism, while it's a fraught word that can often carry emotion with it, emotion, guilt, right. and even shame, cast and, and the focus is a focus on the structure and the infrastructure. And that takes us away from the blame of anyone. This, this infrastructure that we've inherited has been around you know, since before the country was founded. As I described this, uh, our caste system, uh, our country actually, as an old house. Look at this old house that we have inherited. We did not build the house and we're not responsible for whatever might have been um, you know, not so well done in the, uh, in the building of it. But we now are the inheritors of it. It's now up to us as the owners of this house, all of us, not just one group, but all of us. I mean, recognizing how interconnected we all are and how we all um, have to bear the consequences of it, whether we are aware of it or not, we, we, are, we are experiencing the consequences of it, whether we know it or not. I've, it's funny, I've been having these conversations with friends for so long where... where coming from South Africa, where we are now in a place where because the country shifted power from white to black and the country is now more representative within its power structures, we've come to realize now that caste is now a new issue that we have to deal with. We thought that race was the thing and then it would be finished. And now you still have a new version of the haves and the have-nots determined by, as you say, different signifiers with its language, with its culture. It's really interesting that like now we, there's another monster we have to tackle on a different level that we didn't think about because we just thought, oh, you just get rid of the race problem and everything is solved. And then now it's like, oh no, here's, here's the root almost of the problem. And race was just the, the, the cover that we were dealing with. I had that, that experience when I was in South Africa about what I call situational elevation that occurs when a, a person's from a marginalized group in one country and they go to another country and find themselves without any action on their own part because of perceptions elevated accidentally. And then, you know, when I was in South Africa, people would just hear the, the accent and I would get invited to parties and receptions and all this kind of thing. And right. that's part of what is happening in a caste system. And one other thing about this kind of situational uh, elevation is that it's, it allows the country that, um, that, you know, has had marginalized people to turn to the newcomers and say, as to me when I was in South Africa, and say, see, this is proof that if you just do this and do that, you know, you can, right. you can make it. Or it also says that this is proof that it, it really is the inferiority of our people. You know, of our marginalized people are in fact uh, uh, in, inferior. And so it, it, it works both ways. It works both ways. And I've experienced both sides of that. Well, I will say, I, I feel like once again, you've written a piece of work that is going to make us think, it's going to make us uncomfortable. But at the same time, I think once we get through it, it'll make us more comfortable in understanding that we are part of a thing that we all have to look at. And hopefully we will be part of the people who renovate the house, as, as you so eloquently say. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the show and congratulations on yet another masterpiece. Thank you so much. Well, that's our show for tonight. But before we go... There are a lot of groups out there right now who are working to protect and advance voting rights for the elections in November. 
One of them is the Alliance for Youth Organizing, which is a national network of local youth-led organizations mobilizing people to vote. Until next week, stay safe out there, wash your hands, and remember, if your shower pressure isn't strong enough, you can run for president and change it. The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.